Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 95 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Gottlieb, the deputized protester. That's not a magic card, man. I'm sorry. It absolutely is a magic card. Would you like me to read it to you? What? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yes, it is. It is from the conspiracy set. Oh, come on. Two colorless, one red, creature, human warrior, two one, with menace. Fine, fine. I believe you. I believe you. I'm over and it. Melee. I'm over it. Wait, do you know what melee does? Melee. Yeah probably an attack trigger yeah when this creature attacks plus one plus one for each opponent you attacked with a creature this combat cool i had to search for this one i certainly did not know this card existed i was pretty surprised when i found it you know know, just chose it for no reason no real significance i just thought it was interesting pro yeah protesters and i don't know maybe i'm i'm taking this like a little too literally from my personal experience but just like this protester is getting bonuses for attacking multiple people it seems like you should get penalties right yeah. like that'd be that'd be more flavorful i think cuz protesters generally you know the more things they take on the harder it is on them it should be peaceful what about peacekeeper that card's like really balanced and fun right uh false <laughs> peacekeeper is absolutely horrible but i think maybe it would have been an appropriate name for me going into this week. I've I've tried to keep the peace where I can. I, I don't know. Things have been weird this past week. I'll just say that. Uh, you're not alone. Uh, so in case anyone's not aware, I guess, uh, the World Championship of Magic was last weekend. I was invited somehow. I still don't even know how because my year was rather abysmal outside of a second place finish at a Pro Tour. And... I decided to sit out the tournament in protest of a lot of things that I feel are lacking in our community. And uh, I guess, you know, people are just like, you know, why now? Why at all? I think that is kind of a pretty big question. But basically, Wizards has done uh, a lot of things under the guise of just like, give us more time. Like we just need more time. And at some point that time runs out and I'm, I'm just kind of sick of it, you know, put on my little Matt Sperling hat. Yeah. Well, uh, you're not alone. I think there's a lot of people who were first of all, very impressed by the stance that you took Uh, myself among them. I have a great deal of admiration for someone who puts themselves in that position because I am sure it was challenging but you're exactly right. There's only so much time you can give for things to get fixed before you have to take some more significant action. I'm super proud of you for taking that action, but I know you don't want to talk about this that much. I I get that. I understand why. I think what we do here in a lot of ways is separate from this greater issue. We focus very much on the nuts and bolts of magic and you know how to be a better magic player and analyzing cards, that type of stuff. But it would be unfair, I think, not to discuss this a little bit more in depth. And I just want to ask you some questions. Sure. I And first, let me say, like, I I agree that I, I kind of wanted to keep this 
like a drama free podcast and like not really have community issues, whatever. I don't think that's really our shtick. But yes, this is very, very important and just like does involve me in a, a very large deal. So, I mean, I'm, I'm more than fine to discuss it. If people are sick of hearing about it or whatever, that's fine too. I understand if you tune out, but yeah, hopefully Brian's questions are not terrible, but I trust you, buddy. I trust you. Yeah. So I, one of the things I wanted to do with these questions is I think you've, you've done a bunch of media in a bunch of places. You spoke to Luis Scott Vargas for Channel Fireball. You, you've done some other media, Kotaku, maybe some other stuff in the pipeline. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't duplicating what's been asked. And I encourage everyone to check out all that media to see the stuff you've said in the past. And, you know, you talk through a lot of your experience, but I wanted to get more at what the experience was like for you emotionally. I know that in my position, just as someone who wanted to do what I could to have your back, I found the past weekend incredibly stressful. I have to imagine in your shoes, it was it had to be overwhelming at times, right? Yeah, I, I did not know what I was signing up for. I will fully admit that. I am a person who is generally very aware of the different ways that scenarios can play out, and I will generally prep for the worst, Basically, because if something better than the worst happens, I am pleasantly surprised. And I was kind of blindsided this weekend by how difficult it was, actually. And I don't know. It's like going in, I know what I'm giving up. I'm fully aware of that. And I guess I knew that there was going to be a strain on uh, a decent amount of my relationships where I've had a, a very good relationship with Wizards, or at least I would like to think so. Like I, I did work for them in... Uh, you know, 2013, beginning of 2014. And I'm friends with, you know, basically every single person who I've met face to face within the company, like I would consider my friend and I I basically still do, you know, but yeah, I knew, I knew some of that was likely going to get set on fire and that is unfortunate. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I am not trying to hurt anyone or make this personal or anything like that. And I, I know that some people are going to take things that way just because, you know, it's, it's their job and they have a lot of pride in it. And I completely understand that. The thing that really got me was that I, I guess I'm just going to like fast forward a little bit, but like my, my roommates are like too good of friends, basically. So one of them basically started by saying like something along the lines of, it's cool that you're doing this, but I don't agree with it. And then just kind of like left it at that. And the other two who have been incredibly good at contacting me when things are going bad or things are going good either way, like they, they just didn't say anything at all. And I'm just, you know, super worried about like what my situation is going to be like at home. And I mean, I'm, I'm back home now. Everything is good, but like that sort of stuff, like really stressed me out. They didn't contact me because they knew that I was, you know, just going to be completely overwhelmed. Like they, they foresaw that more than I did. So yeah, every, everything is cool on my end, but like that, that was the type of stuff that stressed me out. And I didn't know how the the players were going to react and, you know, even the general public, but like if, if the public gets upset on Twitter or whatever, like I wouldn't necessarily take that as, uh, you know, how everyone feels, right? It's just like the loud minority most of the time. But yeah, even now I'm still trying to figure out kind of like what the climate is with some of my relationships and stuff. And it is kind of stressful. I'm just mostly trying to not think about it. And, you know, I'm the same person. These people are the same people. And I hope that we're still cool, like regardless of 
what they think about what I did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I understand completely. I'm, I mean, I feel bad kind of dredging this up because I'm sure a lot of it is just like, okay, I want to take a minute away from this, but I hope it's beneficial to talk through it and, and get to say your piece on kind of the the unexpected outcomes of your decision. No, it, it absolutely is helpful. And I also part of the problem last weekend was that I was mostly isolated. I was in Vegas and I was, you know, I could have flown home immediately. But again, I was in that spot where it's like a lot of people were just like, yo, like, can I talk to you, your roommates for you and just like make sure everything's OK? And it's like, no, because then if things aren't OK, like I don't really want to find out that answer right now. Like I will stay in Vegas, continue to have these discussions with people and actually try and, you know, figure out what the next step is, see how everyone feels, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I did kind of need some time by myself to just go through like a bunch of Twitter posts and Reddit posts and see what people were saying and listen to all the critiques and figure out, you know, what I could have done better and everything. And I think that was really valuable, but I did feel completely isolated and did not know if I would be welcome when I got home. You know, so it's just like, yeah, it was super stressful and awkward and weird, but it was, it was all for nothing. Like th- this is, again, me just looking at the worst side of things and trying to brace myself for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I understand. So let me preface kind of this next round of questions by saying, if there's anything you just don't think you should talk about, obviously just say that. I, I think everyone listening right now gets that there's some things that you know, you don't want to disclose what people said in certain instances, or it's it's just not beneficial to your cause to talk about them. Everyone gets that. Don't feel bad for a second. But you mentioned, you know, wanting to stick around in the next couple of days and have some conversations. Did you get to do that with any decision makers? Was there an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit more after you made this gesture? Nope. How did you feel about that? I, I can't meet with any sort of decision maker before they get back to work and discuss it with everyone, right? Like no one person holds all the power, which is, you know, both a good thing and a bad thing, sort of, but like mostly a good thing. And I I did not expect a response immediately. I don't know. I, I have a few ideas for how to proceed going forward. I'm still figuring all that stuff out yet because truthfully, like I, I didn't really think about it because I didn't know how this was going to be. I don't know, just responded to, I guess. Like, I I honestly had no idea. Right. And And I I think in a lot of ways, you still don't know how it's going to be responded to. Things take time. And I I know you respect that. Nothing was going to change overnight. That's for sure. I mean, yeah, one of the reasons we're, we're in this situation, right, is because things take time. Right. Very true. So I guess as kind of a corollary to that, Wizards did put out a very brief statement uh, I think maybe leading into like round two. Did you catch that statement? Did you have any opinion on it? I sure did catch that statement. It stood out to me for a few reasons. Uh, one, they addressed things that I think that they could address in a positive light to try and make themselves look a little bit better than what my statement was otherwise painting a picture of. And it, it was mostly just in like not so certain vague terms. It was just like, we disagree with this. We disagree with this. And then, oh, look, Paul Cheon and Simon Gertzen, like, therefore, your entire coverage analogy is invalid or whatever. And it was just very weird to me that it was all just very vague, except for like that specific part where they're like, these two guys. It was basically a non-statement, except for that part stood out to me as a thing where like, why, why would you feel the need to point that out necessarily? 
I, I've talked to a lot of people since then who have been like, you know, to be fair, Wizards has made a lot of improvements, which is true. And that is certainly something that I neglected to put into my manifesto or whatever you want to call it. And that includes coverage, of course, you know, like I was I was a little too snarky in that paragraph. That was the one where it just did not feel very political or even handed or anything. And, you know, just me taking like a random jab at them for no reason when obviously the advantage bar is like kind of a joke when you take into consideration all the other things that they could be doing to make coverage better. But there's still no place for, you know, me just getting childish, right? Do you regret phrasing it the way you did? Oh, absolutely, man. There's There are like three or four spots I specifically wish that I could rewrite. And this already went through a bunch of rewrites, you know, and then just like time kind of ran out and I was happy with what I had and had not received any feedback from like the very few people that I was sharing it with beforehand. You know, like no no one caught that that was just like a bad thing for me to put in there really. So yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could do it better. I wish I could uh, paint a, a more clear message for people who were not as enfranchised, where it's like I used a lot of jargon and I mentioned like Alex and Jared without specifically describing their past. And uh, a lot of people latched onto the first sentence that I wrote, even though I immediately, you know, qualified it in the next sentence or whatever. It's just like even, you know, Kotaku's whole thing was just like, Jerry wants pros to make more money. And it's like, yo, that is just not what this is about. And that's on me, right? Because I can look at my writing and be like, well, this is how it's supposed to be interpreted. But if, you know, thousands of people are interpreting it a different way, then that's on me. Yeah. One of the things you kind of learn very quickly is that writing for that kind of audience, which was just tremendous. I mean, it's hard to even estimate how many people were exposed to your statement over the course of the weekend. It's tough to convey your ideas to that many people. You have to be real pointed, real precise to be able to effectively convey what you're going for. I don't think it's something anyone gets right on their first attempt at kind of these mass communications. So it's something people practice for years and years to kind of get to the place where they can make corporate statements and things like that. So no shame in a few missteps along the way, I think. Ah, uh, no shame, but I'm I'm constantly hard on myself and this is no exception. And especially in, when what you're saying is true. Like the Reddit post got 300,000 views and it's like, that's more people read that than have read anything else that I've written, you know? So there should be no shame, but it's like, well, if I was going to not blow it, this would have been the case to not blow it. This would have been the time. Yeah. I I don't think blowing it is fair, but anyway, we'll, we'll move past that point. And this is the question where I think probably you're going to want to, you know, with at least withhold some information. And I totally get why, I just wanted to know if there was anyone who's either support or lack of support really surprised you. And I get if you don't want to name names, if you feel like you have to protect people's confidences, but you know, the general experience, was it surprising who had your back and who didn't? Yes, on both sides. And obviously I'm not going to name names, but right, as you shouldn't. Yeah, uh, it was a very interesting and somewhat enlightening experience just the whole way around. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around a lot of it. So we're looking back on this now. We're removed a few days. Do you overall, nitpicks aside, you know, wishing you did a few things differently, do you consider your efforts in this endeavor a success? Zero regrets for the decision would have 
changed some of the micro aspects of it. I hope the change is coming one way or another. And I am certainly thinking about what to do next, depending on what happens. And there's like a bunch of stuff that I'm waiting on basically. And I have a bunch of like plans and backup plans and whatever. So who knows? I'm, I'm going to be busy for the foreseeable future, I think. Yeah, I'm sure this is going to lead to a lot more, uh, both opportunities and consequences. I, I mean, unquestionably, there'll be consequences from this. I hope they are consequences that are, you know, something you can work with and, and find a way to move forward from. I know this is a almost impossible question. The likelihood of your actions spurring real tangible change. Give me a percentage value. What do you think the chances are that this can serve as a catalyst for some real growth in the magic professional community? Well, the thing is, is that what I did will not necessarily influence change, but I I do think it does a good job of shining a flashlight on what a lot of the problems are. And now it's kind of up to the decision makers to decide whether or not they want to do anything. They could very easily just ignore me and try and move on, right? But I feel like if that happens or say I get shadow banned from coverage and never get another feature match again, like people are eventually going to catch on, right? And then it's just going to be bad again. So I do think that change will happen eventually. I don't know how fast I, I would err on the side of guessing that it's going to move slowly rather than quickly. But I do think that this is going to be a net positive in the end for sure. Did you have any moments in the last few days where you were just like, what if I just played in one world? Has that crossed your mind even for a second? Yeah, of course. But like, do you, do you ever go into a tournament thinking that it's just like, oh, you know, like what if, what if I win this GP or what if I win this PT or whatever? It's like, it's cool to fantasize and like daydream about that stuff. And I don't know. Ultimately, I don't think it changes my life drastically. If given the option of, winning worlds and benefiting basically solely myself or doing this and trying to benefit the entire community. Like I'm, I'm definitely on board with the community thing. It's not even close, man. Like if, if I never play another magic tournament again, like say they make some horrible decision, like ban me for life or whatever. I don't care as long as it means that like this community and these people that I care about are better off as a result. I'll, I'll figure out a way to be fine no matter what happens, which is, one of the ways I was able to justify me doing this, you know? And I think that transitions really well to my next question. We picked up a ton of new Patreons for this podcast over the past week. And uh, it's, you know, patently obvious that it is in very large part due to your efforts over this past weekend. Maybe they just really liked our GRN top 10. Maybe. I, I thought I nailed it. I thought it was a really good top 10. <laughs> No, I, I, I know that it is exactly a direct result from that. And it, I, like, that was not necessarily something I was expecting, but damn, you know, like I'm, um, I'm super thankful. And there was one person on Reddit who was like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a patron. And I'm just curious, like, did like my patronage, like help this at all? And it's like, yes, absolutely. Like if I did not have a, you know, solid ground to stand on, assuming that I get banned for doing this or whatever, it's just like, I, I probably couldn't afford to do that. And then I would just be in the same boat as like a lot of the other competitors in the tournament where a lot of people thought about walking out as soon as they read my thing and joining me. But it's like, 
well, A, I don't think anything's going to come of this. And B, like, you know, I kind of need the pro points, the equity, the money, whatever. Yeah, I I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but it's pretty clear that the success of this podcast does a lot to put you in a position where you can be the voice of people who are hamstrung by the existing system and and really, you know, they are dependent on the outcome of worlds to be able to continue their career. And that's a difficult spot to affect change from. I, I mean, you really are just committed to doing the best you can in that tournament. Otherwise, your entire career could go up in smoke next year. You have no idea what's going to happen. And I'm sure that you having some freedom from that had a lot to do with your capacity to make this decision. Absolutely, man. I, I think it's like kind of beautiful too, because I don't know how many people know about like my background or my history, but it's like I was always really big into even when I was on the train or like gold in, you know, 2007 or something like that. Like I would still have forums set up for my friends who were grinding and trying to qualify and everything. And I would share with them decks that I was playing on Magic Online and just like crushing cues with and stuff. And uh, one of the years was very, very kind to me where I got a lot of people qualified for nationals with like some Naya deck I built, you know, it's like, and and now I end up having this podcast and it's like, this is exactly where I want to be. It's just like helping people do better in magic and achieve their goals, you know, because I, I have the capability to do that. I can do that. And it is a thing that is very, very rewarding to me. And it is really cool that it just kind of like comes full circle and the support for or the support from the people who I am trying to help make it so that I can do this thing like protest worlds, which will inevitably benefit those people who are supporting me. You know, it's just, it's beautiful straight up. Yeah. As, as someone who was in those forums, I remember them very well. And you certainly always put a priority on assisting people who, I mean, let's call it what it is. They were at a lower competitive level than you were. You were competing at a gold platinum level. And these were people just trying to make their way into the high level tournament scene. And still your focus was on helping them many times at the detriment of yourself. Kind of. Uh, ins- I've, I've lost mirror matches. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah there are just people you meet where, I don't know, for me, I just see something in them, like some, some sort of spark of talent or just determination or whatever. And it's just like, I know that this kid is going to get there eventually. You know, and it is exactly those types of people who are the ones who I want to work with because they're just like so steadfast and so determined. It's just it it makes me so happy to just be around people like that. You know, it's just like really, really fires me up for some reason. No, I I get it. You know, passion is contagious and seeing people achieve their goals. It it means the world to me. I've I've been in some mentorship type roles in the past. You know, I I think back to my experience in law school where I was like a TA or when I was editor in chief of my law review and I had kind of a staff working under me. And and the thing I always took away from those endeavors was watching people who learn from me achieve what they set out to do. And it was always so like inspiring and it justified all the hard work you ever did to see someone achieve their goals. It's like, this was totally worth it. I would give a thousand more hours to see like the joy they're experiencing right now. Well, I mean, I I imagine that is very similar to being a parent. I wouldn't know, but yes, I could, I could see that absolutely having uh, some threads of commonality. So I want to wrap this up. I think I, I feel like 
we want to talk some magic. We want to we want to get into actual X's and O's. I, I, was, I guess I was, I was going to say, "Oh, good show, everyone. See you next week." <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not letting you off the hook that easy. <laughs> I guess I will wrap it up with one final thing, and this just comes from. It's a question I've seen a lot of people ask, so I want to relay it to you. I think I'm probably like their direct access to you, so I'm going to propose it now. If people want to support you in your efforts right now, because I don't think you're done. I, I think you will do what it takes to see effective change in magic or basically die trying and hopefully not actually die, but maybe kill your career trying if you have to. I, I feel that you are committed to change in magic. So where someone has your back, what is the best way for them to show support to you right now? I don't know yet. That's the real answer. I am, like I said, I'm trying to figure all this stuff out. It depends what happens in the next couple of weeks, but I will absolutely let people know because I, I know that there are a lot of people out there that I, I, I got literally thousands of messages and that's just not even a joke, you know? And there are a lot of people who feel very similarly uh, as I do on a lot of the things I talked about, if not all of them. So yeah, I mean, pe- people are fired up to do good. And really, it seems like all they need is an outlet, you know, like some way to actually like channel that. Because say you're some PPTQ grinder, you know, in some small town or whatever, it's like, what power do you have? What can you possibly do? But it's like, you know, obviously together, we can do a lot. So the thing that I've been telling people is just be kind to one another. I mean, at the end of the day, what I want to do is make the community a better place. And I I want people to be happy and enjoy playing magic because I mean, this, this game was a big part of my life. And the whole reason I ended up here was because like this, this was basically the only thing I enjoyed doing as a kid, you know, like this, this was an escape from a really shitty life. And if I did not have this, I don't know where I would be. And I want that to exist for everyone. Great. I think that's a good place to close on. I mean, this all comes from a place of benevolence, good, and love for the game. And I'm sure the people at Wizards who feel kind of targeted by this aren't feeling that right now. And I get it. I I know it's hard to be criticized and to, to have what you see as your work torn down but it really comes from a place of love and care and just wanting the game to succeed and last forever and, and be this amazing thing that it has been for so many years. And, you know, almost certainly will continue to be in the future because we've faced crises before and we've overcome as a community. And, you know, sometimes it just takes actions like this. Sometimes there's pain and growth. And I I think we may go through a little bit of pain right now, but I hope everyone is, cognizant of the fact that it just comes from a place of love and wanting the game to be as good as it could possibly be. Agree completely. All right. You want to talk some magic cards? I kind of need a break after that, but yeah, I would, I would love to talk about some magic cards and I actually, I can't, I can't wait, man. Like uh, not only uh, did I not do any testing for worlds because I knew that I was uh, not going to play like basically immediately after the pro tour, you know, I didn't get to play in worlds and I just haven't played magic in a long time. And guilds of Ravnica is just, it, it is it. I am ready. Yeah. yeah. This set is complete gasoline. Just so many ideas to explore. And, you know, at, at some point when you're diving into a set, you hit a wall and you're like, Oh, 
there's this problem or this is actually what's completely limiting me right now and I need to make sure everything is all about this interaction. I, I am nowhere near that wall. I don't think it's going to come anytime soon. There are just so many good ideas floating out there right now and so many ideas that deserve more attention and more exploration. Yeah, shout out to Liam. I was actually just going through his, he actually completed the 50 GRN deck challenge, which I felt like people might just be like, well, you know, here's 30, but to take the number 50 so literally, it's just so insane. So Yeoman and, completed it too. He, he posted his on Reddit. Oh, okay, dude, that's rad. I have to go yep. check that out too. Yep. Yeah, you know, I I try and do like the Chapin thing where it's just like you go through, you find every interaction, you build decks around them. And like, those are the articles that you present in the few weeks leading up to the set release. And I try and do that. And just no matter what, I end up missing so much stuff. And Liam just has like 10 things that I never considered. So right. I, I retweeted it. You quote tweeted it. So by all means, like go check that out. Uh, one of the things that you and I talked about earlier this week was like Mulder Hulk Memorial to Folly. Yep. And it's like, yeah, that was a thing that just like popped up on the internet. That's like, okay, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. There's that. And you know, that kind of mushes in with that whole green, black engine type thing. When you go to Eldest Reborn, Golgari, Fine Broker, like you just get to play out of your graveyard forever and ever. And if you can reach the late game at a stable place, it has the grindiest, like one of the grindiest setups of all time, at least in recent memory. I don't recall anything that can just play out of the graveyard and and have this never-ending stream of both threats and answers. Pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, basically the only thing we're missing is like Nissa's Renewal Seasons Past, right? Like this this deck is as grindy as that deck was. Right, right. Same same type of thing. And and I like that style of deck. I think it's a cool place to to start an exploration of the format. But there are some aggro decks out there, and I think that's kind of the place you need to start any exploration of a format. I mean, what's your take on that? I, I think that there's some tendency from people to overstate how important aggro is early on in a format, but I do think that you need to have a baseline to hold all of your decks up against. Yeah, absolutely. And Mono Red has been good enough for enough years that is typically the litmus test. And then there'll be like some more mid-rangey white deck that ends up being the real litmus test. And since it goes slightly bigger, it's it's better against the aggro decks in week two and stuff. And I don't know, right now, we, we kind of live in this age where aggro has done very, very well in week one to the point where people were just like, well, that's it. That's all you can do. And people try and analyze it where it's like, well, there's the right threat, wrong answer thing where... You know, you can play Moment of Cravings and lose to Watch Wolf or whatever, and aggro decks don't have that problem. And in week one specifically, people are trying out a bunch of new ideas that aren't necessarily tuned, where if your aggro deck isn't tuned, it doesn't matter. You, you still probably have a mana curve, right? And then you just end up getting under people and beating them. But this set and this format are both pretty strange in that we've, we're finally in an age where we have good answers again. Yeah, and also diversity of threats seems to be dialed back a bit. The planeswalkers are all bad. That's exactly where I was going. The planeswalkers are not this threat that just absolutely ends the game if you do not answer them immediately. And that's the world we've lived in for a few years now, honestly. Planeswalkers have been absolutely determinative of what you are capable of in a format. And look, Teferi's still here. Let's not forget about Teferi. Let's not forget about Karn. Right. Also a very excellent planeswalker. But beyond that, 
you can see the trend. Planeswalkers are getting weaker, I think, to the game's benefit. I think it's a positive development. And also, simultaneously, we're starting to see some real diversity in answers, be it Conclave's Blessing or Assassin's Trophy. These are very versatile cards that can, no matter what the threat may be, with some exceptions, obviously, there's still there's always going to be hex proof. There's always going to be ways around removal, without a doubt. But these are broader answers than we've had in the past. Yeah, there's no there's no Gideon or Chandra or anything even remotely close to it. And Teferi is coming out of control decks typically. So I wouldn't be super worried about like, oh, man, I killed all their creatures. And then I ran out of Raska's Contempts and Teferi just got me like that's just not going to happen. I'd even go a touch further and point out that there's no Heart of Kirin, which I think is equally as important. Like the two drop four four flyer, or you know, if you want to go back to Smuggler's Copter, the yeah. two drop three three flyer that just the game completely warps around it. I'm not seeing that same type of card. That's not to say there's not very, very good aggressive tools, because there are. We still have Lana or Elf into Steel Leaf Champion. Like that's some crazy efficiency right there. But at the same time, I think there's a difference between one drop into three drop versus two drop that's a four four. Those are two completely different worlds. Yeah, you play enough Doom Blades, you know, those those things are gonna be fine. Like the worst thing that you're gonna have to deal with is haste, I think, is a fairly good mechanic right now. And just things that go a little bit wider. So you're gonna need some things that play cleanup duty, either uh, some sweepers or just bigger blockers, you know, things that can in- invalidate cards like Heroic Reinforcements or Transformed Legion's Landing or the Convoke X spell, make X creatures, you know? Yeah, and that's kind of where I've been with a lot of my decks is that they need to be able to either get wide themselves or have answers. And I think that's one of the things I'm learning as I experiment more and more with Green Black. And I had respected Azoni as a proactive threat. This is the way I'm going to end the game because it has this very splashy large effect. But it's becoming more important to me now as a reactive effect because decks are capable of going wide. You mentioned Legion's Landing. You need to be able to present a lot of blockers or have cleanup and reliable cleanup. Assassin's Trophy also does a nice job of answering a flipped Legion's Landing. Um, so there's other outs, but you, ha- you have to have a plan for that kind of very expansive board. Uh, and that has bumped Azoni up in my eyes quite a few places. Yeah, I, that's one of those cards I just have to get into play because it looks to me like the first one might be kind of anemic or if you are spending a lot of uh, your time and effort to make it so it is not anemic, you're going to have like a bunch of Stitcher suppliers and be down on cards and not be able to trade profitably in combat. So like maybe from the Boros or Selesnya side of things, you have a big enough board that the one ones don't actually brick wall you like. Ishkana type stuff was a lot of toughness, right? And this right. just seems like you could very easily get rolled over by a bunch of like three threes. One of the things I've spent the better part of the past week doing is getting my green black decks to a place where they can actually compete with Boros. I, I mean, look, the first 10 drafts of any green black deck I put forth were just getting absolutely completely smashed over and over and over. And I I couldn't find exactly the right mix of, I guess, both proactive and reactive cards to to really keep pace with Boros. And and now I'm starting to figure things out a little bit more. One of the key cards that has really surprised me that I've been leaning on very hard 
is Ravenous Chupacabra. And longtime listeners of this show know it's something I spent a lot of time kind of railing against saying how bad Chupacabra was and how people were overreacting and making mistakes by playing it in large numbers. You uh, said the Scarab God was unplayable. Rah, 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 rah. Exactly. This is Scarab God all over again. I still stand by my statements at that time. I think I was right. I think that was not a ravenous Chupacabra format. This one is. And Chupacabra now gets its chance, chance to shine and has been an absolutely critical part of my green black decks at this point. I agree completely. Uh, because of what the threats look like, like you noted, there there are no hearts, there are no Chandras, there's not even Scrap Heap Scrounger, man. Like, there's no recursive threat, really. Every, everything dies, and it's great. Yeah. And Chupacabra's 2-2 body actually trades with stuff. It's actually relevant. And Golgari specifically makes use of that body really, really well. So I do think that people are going to be looking at things like History of Benalia, Tajik, Aurelia, where at least you're getting a little bit of value from them, not necessarily in card economy, but uh, in damage or uh, maybe like an extra 2-2 or some extra damage off the pump or what have you. So. I think people will go there eventually because Chupacabra is going to be a problem for them for sure. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I will also, you know, once you get to Chupacabra being good, the other card, which has just been absolutely phenomenal for me is Fine Finality, a very Duh. key part of my green black decks and, you know, recurring Chupacabras against creature decks. Yeah, that's really, really good. Or just making, you know, one arbitrarily large blocker and cleaning up the rest of the board completely fine. You're happy to throw away any mana dorks you might have floating around and, you know, making your next Izoni that much bigger. You're, you're generally fine with getting to that board state. So those are the two cards, probably more than anything else that have been critical to finally finding success against what I would consider the, Tier zero of the format, just the Boros, Steel Leaf, Stompy. That's where I start all of my explorations at this point. And, and finally, I'm starting to turn the corner against them. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, from talking about the format and uh, the way you describe how games are playing out and stuff, it's just like, man, maybe Sky Knight Legionnaire is good. Like, I, I don't think that that should really be the case because I also think that Moment of Craving is just very, very good. Agreed. But I, I could totally see a world where flying ends up being super huge. Yeah, it's it, there's not a lot of reach, right? Uh, there are cards like Corral uh, Harpooner floating around, but that's just a trade. You're you're pretty much fine with that, unless there's some shenanigans going on, some kind of pump. I, I think one one flyers are very vulnerable. That makes things like Siren Storm Tamer a little iffy. Right, if green decks are picking up a lot of these harpooners, but on the whole. I could see you, you just don't want to play ground-based combat against Golgari decks. And, you know, I, I talk about my tier zero. I think I'm getting to my tier one now. And it is Golgari. I mean, these cards look powerful off the bat. It just took a little bit of finagling to get them into the right place. And there's just too many different ways to build it. There are. There are. I, I mean, I can think of 10 ways. And, you yeah. know, are, are you a ramp deck? There, I think there's a Golgari ramp deck that's relying on big spells. You could be super dedicated to the fine broker style of deck where you're just looping Eldest Reborn. You can do aggro Golgari, I think is completely reasonable. There's Charnel Troll or is, is that what it is? Charnel Troll? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of ways to play this. Um, you know, I've heard people start talking about Bone Dragon. I'm not super high on Bone Dragon. The payoff has always felt low to me, but 
it's there and people are exploring it at this point. And it's going to be really interesting to see where Golgari ultimately settles. It's not going to surprise me if there's three distinct archetypes, three or four distinct archetypes yeah. in, in the color combination. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to do Stitcher supplier things. There are a lot of reasons to be very creature heavy in a different sort of more mid-range build. And then there are ones that's just like, eh, we don't really need this undergrowth crap. We'll just play a good green and black cards. And I think that's completely fine too. Yep. I'm with you. And I'm sure there's also just like beatdown versions of this deck, like Sam black built Toronto troll steel leaf champion Galta. Like Galta is just a card. It still exists. It's still very good. It's going to die to Chupacabra, but the, the turn you Galta, you're probably double spelling like a five power thing into it. So that, that might make things tough for them. And I could totally see that just being like a completely reasonable week one deck too. Right. Keyword big is one we talk about a lot and uh, it covers up a lot of weaknesses and blanks a lot of removal that exists right now. Uh, so yeah, I, I believe in the power of Galta, even if people are starting to make concessions to, you know, just actual creatures that die being part of the metagame again. It's been so long since that's been true. Oh Yeah. There's just not a lot of value attached to these things. And the value that you do get from things like District Guide or Chupacabra, it's it's somewhat small and it's very limited. It's not like Tireless Tracker where it just snowballs and destroys you, right? Mm-hmm. It is just like very much this one-shot thing and you can catch back up to that very easily. Thank God for that, by the way. <laughs> I'm so happy. I mean, it feels like things, like cards like, district guide feel reasonable again. And like I said, when we were talking about district guide initially, I I think there's been a period of time where that was not a realistic magic card to play. Uh, It it just didn't compare to everything else that was going on, but it feels like I I think wizards is doing a very nice job of simultaneously scaling back power level and still making really, really interesting somehow still powerful stuff. It's just focusing the power in answers or power in value as opposed to just this card snowballs out of control and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, I think we just have more playable cards in the standard format too. It's very rare where I start off with an idea and I'm just like, oh, I'm blatantly missing like a good three drop for this deck or I'm blatantly missing a way to interact or a sideboard card. It generally feels like all the boxes are checked, which we generally don't have, especially in five set standard. Yeah, good point. I, I think that's a very good observation. And, you know, I've, I think I've struggled with building my sideboards because there are so many things I have the capability to account for. I can find answers to basically any problem you present me. I can think about how I want to address it. But it's a question of what problem am I answering in that moment? And am I overlooking something else as I devote five slots to this? Because there are tools to absolutely take care of every threat. The one that comes up all the time is Vinemare. And sometimes I'm putting together a sideboard and I just lose track of Vinemare for a moment and don't leave myself enough outs to Vinemare. But if you want them, you can find them. There are answers to Vinemare in you know any combination you may be playing. You can find ways to beat that card. And similarly, Cartage Tyrant, there, there's answers out there, I promise you. Yeah. The the one thing I wonder about Vinemare is whether or not there's a good way to give it trample or evasion. And I know that these green-white on Sarah's Wings decks started popping up at the end of last season. And it's like, man, maybe that's just a thing. I, I imagine that combination just KOs so many people. Oh, I really, really, really hope not. 
It is. It is possible. I mean, look. Even if it is a thing, that'll be a limited, a limiting factor on the format, and we'll be able to adapt to it. Like I said, there's answers oh, of course, to of everything. Course. But that that's a pretty boring place to start week one. But I buy it. I mean, that's the type of strategy that like you're not prepared for this. What are you going to do? Seriously, like you're you're wasting your time making a bunch of small ground creatures. You're playing a zoni. Like those cards are completely irrelevant against everything I'm doing, and you have no outs to this plan. I mean, there are always things like. Uh, Conclave Tribunal and Assassin's Trophy, which just always give you an out to random things like that without even trying. And then there's like Night of Autumn, Sprouting Renewal, whatever. There are so many outs to just random enchantments. So I don't know. Yeah, that's another card that I feel like I should talk about my experience with. It has not punished me really at all. I'm, I'm not playing four really in any of my green black decks. I'm speaking of Assassin's Trophy right now. I, I generally start with three. But now having played a bunch of games with three Assassin's Trophies in my deck and pretty much universally being happy to see it in my hands, I'm starting to think it might just be a four of, you know, there is a downside. I'm never going to deny that, but you can just play around it. And having that versatility this early in a format is paying me dividends over and over and over. You know, I I thought the card was very good. It was my number one card in the set. I still think I may have been undervaluing it, at least in the standard context. It didn't make my top 10. I don't regret that. I you think will. it. You will nah, regret that. Nah. Dude, what, what kind of like fun wager can we do? Uh, I mean, I can't even think of a theoretical wager that you could put forth that you could win on. Like, what are you going to suggest? There's going to be no Assassin's Trophy in the first top eight? No, I think Trophy is like a two of. I just basically agree with where you started, right? But yeah, I don't know. I I think if in the middle of the format, we're talking about how to build the optimal versions of some decks, it's like, okay, well, yeah, it's it's two trophies. Well, look, middle of the format is different from week one, right? We have a metagame we're targeting at that point. Things have changed. We know what we have to answer and maybe it'll be a format where trophy just we're not concerned about on Sarah's wings anymore, but this early on where I'm just like, well, expose me to everything. Let me see how good everything is. It's paying dividends over and over because you never know what you're going to be facing. Oh, look, here's Teferi. I'm prepared for it. Here's on Sarah's wings. I'm prepared for it. Here's search for Azkanta out of blue black. I have outs to that now. And the versatility has just been overwhelming in this first week of testing. Yo, I think you severely overestimate how good Assassin's Trophy is against search for Azkanta. But it's like, if you can't beat a flip search under any other circumstances, you're happy to have the out, right? I, like, I get sure, they'll probably yeah, get an yeah, activation, yeah. and that's not good, and, and they're ahead at that point. But outs are good. I, I mean, there's no really other way to put it. I, I want to have answers to what my opponents are doing, especially when I'm playing these kind of mid-rangey answer-based decks. How many field of ruins are typically in your Golgari decks? Uh, thus far, I have not played any. I'm leaning more towards like Memorial and Fine Broker type stuff. And also I've been doing like Llanowar Elf Stitcher Supplier stuff. Yeah. So in that instance, I don't think you can play Field of Ruin. I, I believe there's certainly Golgari decks that could appropriately play Field of Ruin. And that would be a much cleaner answer. I'm with you there. But where you don't realistically have access to it, you know, I, I'm happy to default to Assassin's Trophy. Well, it's it's just one of those things where mid-range Golgari against a blue control deck with Search for Iskanta, like the control deck is going to have inevitability. I guess that's another reasonable point is like inevitability might actually exist again. 
It's interesting you put it on the blue side. The inevitability engine I've been most focused on is like the Golgari Eldest Reborn stuff, but I I get there's a world where that is trumped by the way the blue decks are set up. Right, because, well, they don't have a good win condition. So it's like you have to do a bunch of Teferi stuff to actually get ahead and win the game. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like if you're doing this mid-rangey stuff and then you have to Assassin's Trophy their search, especially if it's like post-flip and they get an activation out of it, it's you spent your turn doing that. Like you're just buried at that point, I think. Yeah, it's it's snowballed from there. I can buy that. So then at that point, why even why even bother? Like try and be proactive to beat those cards or play Field of Ruin, but I agree with the way that you're building your decks. If you have Fine Broker or Stitcher Supplier, you probably don't want it, but I do think that there is like a mid-range uh kind of creature light version that I was talking about earlier that could very easily incorporate Field of Ruin. No, I'm excited to see what that looks like. Like I said, I, I'm not declaring any version of Golgari that I've come up with to be the de facto best one. I think there's interesting ones. I think there's some matchups I'm starting to slide in my favor, but who knows what we're going to be preparing for after week one. It could be literally anything, so we'll, we'll have to stay flexible. Yeah, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. I mean, I, I think doing things like this 50 GRN deck challenge is really cool because now you have an idea of what is possible in the format. Right. And right. after after week one happens, you see what kind of the metagame is shaking out to be. You don't have to do all this work then. You already can look at certain strategies and just be like, oh, okay, well, these things work sort of. And, you know, this thing would be a good way to target these three decks that have emerged and all that stuff. And if you're especially if you're going week to week, tournament to tournament, like you play Either maybe you play in a PPTQ or you don't play or whatever, and then there's there's the SCG that same weekend, and then you're playing in something the next weekend. Just trying to figure out a format in one week is too much. Like you gotta lay some groundwork for sure. Yeah, it's hard for me to believe that the effort put forth in this kind of fifty deck process isn't going to pay tremendous, tremendous dividends. It's just putting you so far ahead of what everyone else has done. There will be a point where you are able to capitalize on the information you have gained in this process. And, you know, Liam said something to the effect of a lot of his decks were works in progress, like that was a problem. I mean, every deck's a work in progress, right? You should always view a deck that way as only a jumping off point. And that's one of the things I find, I think when I'm providing content and I feel like people are missing the point I'm trying to get at sometimes. A lot of it is that they are anticipating what I have put forth as like, this is the deck. This is where I want you to be. You are making a mistake if you don't play this. And and there are times when I will say that. And I think anyone who has hung around the game Patreon Discord knows there are certainly points where I will say, look, I think this deck is incredibly good. I would advise you play it right now. But those times are rare. In most instances, any deck work we're doing is just exploratory at this stage and is constantly in a state of flux. I think the myth, uh, or not myth, just kind of like legend of me carrying a notebook everywhere has not really been mentioned lately. So (laughs) I'm just going to try and revive that real quick. Uh, The notebook is still alive. And basically none of my deck lists are finished. They are all works in progress. It's like I'll have a card where, well, first I'll list all the cards that I think are playable within this archetype. And then I'll also come up with something that's like a rough mana base, right? I will fill in the numbers that I know are 100% correct, like two Assassin's Trophy. <laughs> and then okay. 
And then if there's a card that I feel like, okay, it's at least, a, I would at least have two, maybe three or four. It would be like a two to four. But when a new set comes out and I'm writing these articles with just test decks, basically, the one thing I hate, I just despise doing this, is having to finish the deck list. Mm. Like I have this cluster of cards and you know ideas and stuff like that, and you can glean a lot of information from that deck list. But just actually finishing the sixty and you know, God forbid, a seventy-five, like it, right. it physically pains me. Right, and I I think unfortunately that's what people have come to expect from Magic content. I don't know that's beneficial. Like I think if we were posting these clusters and maybe being more explicit about this is an unfinished deck list, people would learn more. I also know at the same time, though, there is a contingent, probably a very vocal contingent, if I'm being honest, who would be disappointed not to have just 75s they could sleeve up. But I mean, deck building is just like, it's a process and you have to be willing to do the work. And, you know, I see a lot of times someone will propose a deck list and the person will go, well, why aren't you playing this card? And instead of saying, well, why aren't you playing this card? You should just play that card. Go play it. If you believe in it, that's the adaptation you're making. You're you're carrying forward that person's work. No one's going to be mad at you for changing a card in a deck list they proposed. Like carry it forward. Make the move. If you see a reason to change a card, you can take that chance and, and, and test and see if it is, you know, a, a valid substitution. Yeah, I'll post a list that has like three pyroclasms in the sideboard or something. And someone's like, well there aren't any creature decks in my metagame. Is it okay if I cut these? And it's like, yes, absolutely. Cut away. Nothing is sacred. Just change whatever you want, however you want. If you have found Liliana the Veil to be bad for you in Mardu Pyromancer, by all means, cut it. Uh, There are plenty of other cards that are, you know, just as powerful. And, you know, people have realized that it's okay to play like one of this and one of this because, it is generally better to draw a mix than drawing two of a single card. Mm-hmm. And deck building just kind of goes the same way. You know, if, if you want to play Liliana of the Last Hope instead of Liliana of the Veil, that's okay. That's understandable. Like, we can debate that point, you know, absolutely. And I don't even necessarily know that either one of us is right or wrong. Exactly. Yeah, there's, it, there's times where you can both be correct, depending on your circumstances. And that's why magic is endlessly fascinating. And I know that I said that a lot of my deck lists are unfinished and stuff, but then there are times when a tournament is coming up and I have to figure out what to play. And I've been pretty good, I think, maybe not so much in the uh, most recent past, but certainly since I've, uh, I got back from my tenure at Wizards where I, I just choose to play the best deck or the most powerful deck, whatever I think gives me the best chance to win. And like finalizing those deck lists for tournaments and providing a sideboard guide and stuff, I think is really helpful. I don't think sure. that that every single deck list should just be a cluster of 40 cards in an unfinished mess or whatever. But I do think that there is a lot of value to going through those exercises and figuring out what's possible. I mean, I'm sure Liam and Yeoman have gone through Gatherer or whatever they use, Scryfall, and figured out exactly what cards are in the format and how many things, like how many humans there are, how many soldiers there are, what colors would those be? And can, you know, is it worth it to play like four colors? Like what would happen if we branched out into this color and stuff like that? Like that is super valuable. It cuts, cuts off so much time and we're not doing anything now. We don't have the cards. They're not on magic online. A lot of these people can't play test 
and you know you're you're playing against yourself, which I think is valuable. But for right now, it's it's just a lot of brewing, and I think that you know that it is just very valuable, and I can't really stress that enough. Yeah, we probably bear some of the responsibility, right? Like as content creators, I, I think we assume a lot. Like we assume people will take these decks as drafts when they're not being presented as such. So we bear some responsibility there. We should do a better job of kind of clarifying where we're at in the process. Well, I try and be clear and it's like, well, I'm not sure on this card and these are the other options that exist. You know, I, I try to present people with options and let them know that this is not a finished product and everything. And again, we're in week zero of a format that just rotated and we got a high impact set. I mean, no one really knows what's going to happen. We yeah, have if, some, anyone, if anyone tells you they figured it out, don't listen. Just walk away. Right. We, we have some guidelines with the guilds and everything, but I don't think that week one is going to be strictly guild decks. So I agree. There are a lot of cards that I like. I really like Pell Collector and I really like Plague Spreader and I don't really know why. No, Plague Spreader is British great. I, I no, think that's I, a very important card. I think they're both great, but I'm just enamored with the two of them. Okay. Not necessarily together, but you know. Right. Uh, well, I look forward to seeing where you're at with those two cards. I, I agree. Those are PowerPoints in the format and both capable of doing some really cool stuff. Plague Spreader is like a better Eldest Reborn. Whoa, that's that's a dramatic statement. Yeah, I mean, it's also hyperbole. <laughs> My favorite kind of statement. I love hyperbole. Nice. Well, hopefully it never comes to this, but gun to your head. What, what do you play in a tournament week one? Uh, I would play... Which, which version of Golgari do you play week one? Yeah, so I would play the version I proposed in my article today that is loaded with mana-producing creatures uh, for Llanowar Elves, for Druid of the Cowl, a trio of shamans to get lands back from my graveyard, as well as four Elvish Rejuvenators, four Doom Whisperers. I am of the opinion that if you play Doom Whisperer early enough, it is always good. It will always lead you to whatever you need to turn the game in your favor at that point. The deck lines up really well against the Boros decks. I've had a lot of success, uh, at least in pre-sideboard games. I'm not playing post-sideboard games. I'm just not that far along yet. So if you tell me it just totally trashes you post-sideboard, I could buy that. Boros doesn't have a great sideboard, honestly. Yeah, so what do your sideboard plans kind of look like at this stage? They could go like sweepers. Do you have, uh, what is it? The What's the clarion called, the full name? Deafening clarion. Do you De- have that in your sideboard at this point? Depending on how weak uh, it looks like you would be to opposing go wide decks, uh, tokens, goblins, model red, stuff like that, you could do that. You could do settle the wreckage, which is a little bit better against green decks and is kind of a hedge because your red and white cards should be able to buy you enough time to make settle the wreckage just as good as Clarion, even against aggressive decks. You can go a little bit bigger with Lyra and have some additional lands in your sideboard to help your bigger mana curve. But like the only thing for control or mid-range that I really found was Vance's Blasting Cannons. I know you hate this card, so I know that your answer is going to be no. Have you considered the Sacred Mesa type card? Whose name I, ha- I, don't know I, I haven't. I have to look at that card more. I definitely have to build around that card more. And looking at Liam's decks was one of the things where I'm just like, oh man, like he puts in a lot of decks. Yeah, he's he's high on it. I'm pretty high on it. Maybe not as high as Liam was, but uh, I, I do think it's a powerful card. I think it might be what you're looking for in control spots. Just coming back to my deck, 
I would very easily beat a settled wreckage plan. I think I could be soft against a deafening clarion plan. That's much harder for my deck to beat. So uh, it'll be interesting to see which one comes to fruition and and which one the Boros decks actually pick up early on. But like we said, too many unknowns. So I, I just have to roll the dice. I know the deck is doing something proactive and powerful and has some versatility both in the main deck and in the sideboard. So that's where I'm leaning right now. What about you? Well, let me talk about Dawn of Hope a little bit because I'm desperately searching for some sort of way for these creature decks to have a little bit more staying power. And we talked about District Guide and whatnot, having these these quick bursts of card advantage, but nothing like Tireless Tracker that allows you to go long. It's just like once, once you run out, with Boros, you just kind of run out, you know? Right. And Golgari has the staying power with fine finality, I think, that if that's what I'm looking for, I should probably be looking at Golgari, but Dawn of Hope does kind of do, like, this tireless trackery thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe it is good. The problem is, is that if all you're drawing into is small ball things, they're still going to go over the top of you. Like, you can make a bunch of one-ones and draw some cards and gain some life or whatever, and then they're just going to finality you, and... They're going to have a stable board position and probably start dropping bigger spells on you, and you're just going to fall behind and lose anyway. So I don't know. I got I, this. This card's interesting. I got to experiment more. It is certainly an eye opener that a lot of other people are considering this card when I haven't really. So yeah, I'm curious where you're going to end up falling on it eventually. My guess would be solid sideboard card. Maybe you're doing some resplendent angelly stuff. And there are mm. other, like, now I have to do a gatherer search for life gain, right? Yes, you do. It could change everything. Dude, and, I mean, look, we talked a lot about life gain after uh, the release of Dominaria, if you remember. What, what's yeah. the fountain card called? I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. Fa- the one, Fa- uh, Fountain of Renewal. Right. You were really high on that card. I, I think it was fairly high up in your top 10, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I do like that card a lot. And it is certainly a combo with this. But Yes, it is. If I were forced to pick, I would be trying to play History of Benalia, I think. The white cards are incredibly good, either if you branch out into Boros, Celesnio, or even play Naya. Uh, I told Yeoman to experiment with unclaimed territory, either for elves or humans or soldiers. And I, I guess like knights is another possible one, but I'm not super excited about that one. And yeah, I, I think these decks are could be built in a way where you have a powerful curve out potential. You also have some staying power and you have answers for various things. And the one thing that I kept getting hung up on was that you don't really have like a breaker for control or even mid-range matchups, which is really unfortunate. So yeah. if that's the case, maybe it is just like really aggressive Boros, but I don't even necessarily think that that's the best place to be because of things like Moment of Craving and Chupacabra. Yeah, there's some very efficient answers out there. You know, I, I kind of want to give a, a point of clarity, just because we've talked about Yeoman and Liam a lot throughout this podcast. And I, I think probably a lot of people listening have absolutely no clue who these people are. These are patrons of ours who we've now met through our Discord, have a ton of conversations with. And, you know, I haven't done the hard Patreon sell in a while. But let let me just talk about the Discord for a second. Over the course of this spoiler season, this preview season as we now call it, it's become very clear that I think our Discord 
might be the best deck building community on the planet, bar none, just in terms of a, a very respectful environment and one that is devoted to exploring every cranny of a format in and out, basically 24-7. I mean, there is constant, constant conversation going on there. And this is how both you and I have gotten to know uh, Liam and Yeoman and their participants in this process. And it, it's just awesome to see the work that's being done over there. I can't recommend being part of it any more highly. It, it's just so beneficial to me and I think to everyone involved. Really a great community. Remember the name. That's that's sure? what I'm going to say for, for Liam and Yeoman. Yep. And I'm I'm looking at Mythic Spoiler and right next to Dawn of Hope is Runaway Steamkin. I'm just I'm telling you, man, it's real. Whatever floats your boat. <laughs> just gotta get that little barb in there. All right. I think we have a question to end this episode. So the question that I want to do is from Jethro. And Jethro asks if the player of the year playoff was the following format, what strategy would you bring? Modern Constructed Mirror, you show up with 75, the opponent's given an exact copy of your deck. You play a match of yours, a match of theirs, and maybe some duplicates sealed. Uh, what deck, how do you prepare? I, I don't know about that format, but I kind of do want to talk about the Player of the Year playoff anyway, and I think Jethro was the only person to mention it. And I feel like if they don't do something cool, it's going to be such a huge disappointment. You're exactly right, and I have the answer for you. And the answer is kind of in line with a lot of, it calls back to the beginning of this episode and your some of your issues with magic. And we've talked a little bit about magic failing to evolve in the face of some competition. Well, look, it, the time for pride is over. And when competition has great ideas, great presentation, I don't think we should be hesitant to embrace those ideas and bring them into our community and our game. And the idea I want to steal for the player of the year playoff is the conquest format like they use in Hearthstone. So Jerry, why don't you describe the conquest format and how it works? I'd, I know you're deeper into the Hearthstone community than I, and you'll get right to the essence of it. Deeper, but not that deep conquest from what I've seen varies with the amount of decks that you bring, but it is generally just, you know, Hearthstone has eight classes or nine classes. Nine classes. Nine classes. I Shadowverse. Think, uh, all Shadowverse the Hearthstone pros are going to be laughing at us right now. I know. Yeah, <laughs> dude, I'm so deep in the scene. I don't even know how many classes there are now. Uh, and th- it's not like unified or whatever. Like all of them can have the, the same neutrals if there's a, a busted neutral or whatever. But you just have these four decks. A lot of the time it's four. And, you know, sometimes there's a ban where that kind of solves the problem of like red black being too busted or frustrating to play against, or people don't want to see it on camera or whatever. And it also gives you a lot of different uh, ways for you to build your lineup where uh, you can either try and isolate a very popular deck where if everyone is playing Hunter, you get to play four decks that beat Hunter and then ban whatever their best deck is against your lineup. Or if they just have a deck that none of your decks can beat, you just get to ban it. You just queue in, you know, you each pick a deck. It's effectively random. Like, you don't know what they're going to play. And if you win, you have a win with that deck. And you just keep going until you have a win with all of your decks. Yeah, so there has to be some kind of limiting factor. Like, in in Magic, obviously, we don't have the classes. So you have to have some way of breaking that down. I don't know if the best way to do so is unified. Or if you're doing it at Pro Tour Guilds of Ravnica, 
maybe there has to be a guild element to it where you have to represent each of the the separate guilds. I don't know how exactly you would enforce that. Whatever. Wizards can figure that out. I, I'm I'm giving you the breadcrumbs. Follow it to the end, Wizards. This is an awesome way to present a number one, very wide array of decks. And one of the common complaints with tournament magic is having to watch the same matchup over and over. Well, here's the highest stake uh, one-on-one matchup you could possibly play, and it's going to cover this incredible range of decks. You're going to get to see a host of matchups. And I think that's really, really exciting for people and keeps them from getting frustrated. Uh, that was part of the problem with Worlds. It was The field was 50% red-black, and it was hard to get excited about standard at that point when the, hard, when the field was 50% red-black. So I, I think adapting this kind of new take and this is something that's only popped up in the last few years. But as a community, we shouldn't hesitate to embrace these things. There's a reason Hearthstone has surged past magic in terms of popularity as a viewing experience. And this is part of it. And it's something we could add to our game very effectively. I think something like Modern Conquest, maybe with a ban, maybe not. I feel like there's probably like Modern is so spread out that there's probably no need for a ban. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's like five deck conquest, no ban, and it's not unified, but they have to be different archetypes. And you just have people, maybe not like viewers or whatever, but you just have like judges, right? Like is Zoo, like Bushwhacker Zoo or Burn, like a close enough archetype that they should not be allowed to play with each other or whatever it's like i think that stuff is fine right you know like maybe it's just like they can't share 30 cards or something right some overlap threshold that they can't cross yeah and i think that would be cool like just being able to watch people play heads up matches in a format that is relevant and make it so the decks aren't fake you know Mm -hmm. and If people like the decks, they can go play them at their events. I think it's very important for the viewer to be able to somewhat replicate the experience. And hell, man, maybe you just uh, gold border those decks and sell them. Uh, (laughs) Who knows? Could put that back into the prize pool, maybe some of the proceeds from, you know, showing these world's decks. Oh, God, I would please arena have like cool, <laughs> some kind of cosmetic yeah some kind of cool cosmetic because i will buy it all and not only just to put it back in the prize pool or whatever you know but uh, whatever let's fingers crossed fingers crossed that's all i can say i hope i hope there are changes such as that coming down the pipeline no nah, man let's just keep paying people who are banned from magic to stream arena that's cool that's game yeah yeah <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.